Hi, friends, and to our listeners in the United States, happy week of Thanksgiving to you. I wasn't planning on returning with season six so quickly, but then I had this conversation. One, all of you deserve to hear as many of you will be spending the holiday this week with family. Today, we are talking all about just that, family, with Julia Samuel, who I can't wait to introduce you to in just a moment. But before I do, let me read you a passage from her latest book, Every Family Has a Story, How We Inherit Love and Loss, which is out in the United States as of this month. In the book, she writes, Families are messy, chaotic, and imperfect. Where we love and care most, we also hurt most, fight hardest, and make our deepest mistakes. Yet we thrive when our family is held securely within and around us. It is worth the effort, heartache, and strife. When we can trust in it, it can be the force that holds us together when our world is upended. Even across great distances, when our family is at the center of our being, it can help us find our own equilibrium despite the disorder and madness in the world. The best thing we can do to help this is to prioritize our family and our hearts, our minds, and with our time. She also asks, what is it that enables some families to thrive despite enormous adversity when others fragment? What predicts family breakdown? And how do we begin to take inventory on how we can better our family, how we can create the family we wish for? All of this is found within the pages of this book, and we talk about it on today's episode. So I first heard the name Julia Samuel because she was a dear friend of Princess Diana, and the royal family is my wheelhouse. She actually is one of Prince George's godparents as well, but she is so much more than her friendship with the late Princess of Wales, so I certainly do not want to pigeonhole her there. She is a renowned psychotherapist who specializes in grief. And she worked as a bereavement counselor in the NHS pediatrics department of St. Mary's Hospital Paddington, where she pioneered the role of maternity in pediatric psychotherapy. In 1994, she helped launch and establish Child Bereavement UK, and in 2021, launched the GriefWorks app, which helps the bereaved navigate their grief. I need to download that myself. We talk about that in today's episode, and this is her third book, her first Grief Works, Stories of Life, Death, and Surviving was published in 2017, and her second, This Too Shall Pass, Stories of Change, Crisis, and Hopeful Beginnings came out on March 5th, 2020, a book right on time, if there ever was one. I hope you get as much out of our conversation as I did. Take a listen. Welcome to the show. I am so glad you are here today. What an honor it is to be with you. Lovely to be with you, Rachel. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So every family has a story, as so many books do, came to me at just the right time. We were briefly talking about this a moment ago. So this is your third book. Why choose to write about the family for your latest book? I, because every client that has ever walked through my door, whatever reason they've come with, has spent great tracks of time talking about their family, their family of origin or the family that they're making. And 
what has become increasingly clear to me over decades is that when a big event happens, it could be a loss of death, but it could be loss in many other ways of losing your job or getting a health diagnosis. It affects everyone in the family system and how each person experiences it and how they deal with it has an effect on everybody else in the family system. And I think we've been much too focused on individual expressions when actually as human beings we need to be connected and you know our our kind of hopefully place of safety and best resource is our family but that often isn't the case because difficulties have happened in the present and in the past people have been maxed out and haven't been able to deal with them in a way that is kind of helpful And so one of the other things I'm really interested in um, is transgenerational trauma. So one of the things I look at from the multi-generation families that I worked with in the eight case studies in this book is the pain that gets, that doesn't get dealt with in one generation can be passed down, not inevitably, but can be passed down to the next generation until someone's prepared to feel the pain. And so I wanted to kind of broaden our lens because I think often people when they're suffering feel what's wrong with me, what am I doing wrong? And actually it might well be what is my story, but also what is my parents' story, my grandparents' story? What are the pieces of the jigsaw that are missing? What am I carrying in my DNA and my body and my sensitivity that I don't even know about, but I am suffering. That's so good. And that just gave me a light bulb moment is that until someone in the family is willing to work out this generational trauma, it just gets passed and passed and passed. And that's why the burden maybe can feel so heavy for the person that does choose to be the one to work through it, because you're not just carrying your own burdens, you're carrying generational trauma that is passed. That's just, that was just a, a major light bulb for, moment for me right there. And I'd, I'd love to know <laughs> Yes, which is what this which is what this book is full of is is major light bulb moments. So how important is family to someone's overall quality of life? Why do families matter? So families matter for so many reasons. I mean, the first reason, of course, is that it gives us our initial template of how to be in relationship. And relationship is the sort of center of how we manage in life, whether we have protection or whether we're extremely vulnerable to adversity and so it will give us in the kind of broadest terms an idea of secure attachment reliable predictable ways of being in relationship which we can then have in all the different relationships work relationships romantic relationship friendships or insecure and that can be anxious it can be you know all the different ways of insecure attachment and so that is you know very early we learn that But also we learn from observing the adults around us, mainly our caregivers, how to manage difficulty. So we're given negative or positive coping mechanisms and we carry those into our adulthood. And also, I think the basic thing is that, you know, we are tribal beings and, you know, our brain is looking all the time from our kind of evolutionary biology to look for threat. And I think if we have a sense of safety and belonging in our family, that they are my tribe, they are the people I can go to when life is difficult, that gives us a core sense 
of substance and roots that enables us to weather the, these great winds of difficulty that everyone is navigating through their daily lives. That's beautifully said. And you write in the book, every family has a story, a story of love and loss, joy and pain. And you also write in the book that humans learn best through story. So one of my favorite parts of the book, and you alluded to this a moment ago, were the eight case studies that you shared, which really cover the gamut of topics many families face. And listeners, I guarantee that when you read this book, you will see issues that your own family has faced. I know I certainly saw issues that my family has faced reflected in these case studies, and and you will feel less alone. And as you write, we all struggle with different versions of similar issues, and I find that to be so true. You also write, I came to write this book about families, as you said a moment ago, because every client I have ever had has focused on their family, and that's true. I can't imagine many therapy sessions, at least in some way, not focusing on family, either past or present. And so of all that you've seen across your very fantastic and just really celebrated career, how did you choose these eight stories? Um, Some of them were already in my caseload. So I worked with what I had already. So um, the Rossi family, um, which was a family with trauma from a suicide from the father 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. I was working with one of the my clients, the one of the daughters. And then I asked them if the whole family would collaborate, which was her siblings and her mum. And the others, there were specific things I was particularly interested in. So the Berger family, I worked with five generations with the great grandmother was an ultra-Orthodox Jew. They're all ultra-Orthodox Jews. And she had been at Auschwitz. And I'm married to a Jew. So I was particularly interested and have a kind of um, curiosity about about difference. You know, we can make such assumptions about religion, about faith, about ultra-Orthodoxy, or in, in any forms that it comes, whether it's Muslim or Jewish or Hindu, whatever it is, religious beliefs and I really wanted to get under the skin of that I mean really the reason I chose all the different families was I wanted to show that we separate and attack each other and feel kind of threatened through ignorance Mm. and there is so much more that we share in all the diversity of being human I talk about a gay couple who adopt a child this ultra-orthodox Jewish family a man who's dying of cancer. And when you read the stories and you get to kind of know these people, these amazing people who gave me permission to write about them, we see ourselves and then we feel connected. And then we feel part of this human planet as a whole family, rather than that baddie over there or that person I'm going to look down on over there. Right. And, and that was why I wrote the book. And, and so it wasn't hard work to choose people because honestly I could choose you and it would be fascinating I could choose anyone listening to this podcast Mm -hmm. and it would be equally fascinating so I didn't like take years finding particularly interesting families I think we all have so much that is really worth kind of knowing and understanding well we are getting very close to the holidays which is a time traditionally reserved for family which for some can be the best news ever. We can't wait for it. And for others, maybe not so much. So uh, what are what are some tips that you have for navigating family this holiday season? 
I'd like to add the extra lens is that many families haven't been together mm. all together for like two or three years because of the pandemic. And so, and a lot of people through those years have had heightened experiences of stress and worry could be economic it could be through health it could be just living in a kind of global pandemic heightens all of our sense of fear and I think there are so if I can give you the reasons why that might might help people understand and then I can give you some kind of things that people can do so first of all when we kind of go back into our family home, our brain has a particular part of it that is um, oriented to place. And it's where we have key memories. So the minute we step through the front door of um, our childhood home, which is often where people go to, we we are thrown into that young version of ourselves. So you may be a kind of brilliant exec who's like 45 and you become a four-year-old because the sight, sound, smell, an environment throws us back to being that young child. Mm-hmm. And then you're thrown into the dynamics, which it could be you have a bossy or a difficult sibling, or your dad is kind of diminishing, or or it's a place of safety and love. And, and normally, very all families have this kind of capacity to function and dysfunction, depending on what they're happening. There are no perfect families. So I don't think anyone going home you know, this holiday season is going back to a kind of perfect Walton, a happy family. There's always sure. kind of stuff that's going on. Sure. And and I think one of the reasons, not only is it because we become younger versions of ourselves, it but because we all how often in a family we want everyone to feel the same as us or respond to difficulty or you know or good things in the same way and often every family member will be slightly different in how they manage stuff so it could be how is over control and power issues for instance like who buys the turkey or who's organizing laying the table and you can get a lot of battles about power in a family and the thing that helps in a family is a allowing difference like there isn't a right way it's not black and white thinking but also collaborative power and so the things that help is having good communication and I think people often think about communication as transmitting information but actually listening is really the the key element of communication, really listening to both the music beneath people's words, but also listening to each other. Because once people feel heard, they are less um, threatened. They calm down, they regulate, because they don't have to shout to be heard. So that once you can reflect back, okay, so you're wanting to do the potatoes, and I can get why you want to do them, because you do them really well. Shall I do the, you know, the beets, or shall I do the pudding or whatever it is so that you then everyone kind of feels a bit more um like they belong and I think that's a big part of it I think one of the things that anyone thinking about their family go back to previous um Thanksgivings and think about what are the 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 bombs that go off regularly where are these kind of pitfalls that we regularly go into and see if you can create a narrative for yourself that gives you some understanding and some compassion about why this happens. Because if you broaden your, if you zoom out of the actual event 
and you give yourself a broader understanding of the whole family story and the family history, once you have some compassion for other people, you're less likely to be triggered. Mm. But also, if you know that that's the thing that triggers us, you may be able to have the kind of mindset to take a breath. You can feel yourself wanting to jump in, but take a breath, go outside, get a glass of water, slow down, and then you can come back with a more helpful response rather than your instinctive fight or flight or freeze response. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You know, that's masterclass and how to handle your family through the holidays. <laughs> yes. And listeners for the, for more, grab, grab a copy of the book. This book is coming out at the perfect time. And, you know, I mentioned this earlier, many families, my own family included are navigating profound grief this year. I know that my family is certainly not alone in that we lost, as I told you before, we started recording a beloved family member to suicide over the summer. And this is our first Thanksgiving here in the U.S. and will be our first Christmas and our first new year. Whenever someone passes away, I don't know why this is New Year's is always the hardest for me because he was here in 2022. He will not be in 2023. And that is just so permanent for me. Um, and grief is an area that you have specifically focused on extensively in your work. So how does a grieving family best navigate this holiday season and beyond? So I think, I mean, just acknowledge that this is going to be difficult. This is painful for us coming together at a supposedly happy time um, where it gives you back, throws you back to the memories of when your cousin was alive is extremely painful and there's this overwhelming presence of absence where there's the space where he used to sit or the things that he used to do that you're all aware of so I think talking to each other first about and acknowledging and naming this is going to be difficult we are all grieving we are really going to miss him are there things that we can do to both acknowledge and represent his absence should we have maybe five minutes where we light a candle and we all say something should we have a photo of him somewhere you know each of you find your own particular way of him having his place and there because as as is clear from I can see it in your face when someone dies the task is both to grieve their loss but also find ways of loving and connecting with them because the love for him never dies so finding ways within the few days where you can connect to your love to him and also like maybe for each family look at him do we have to do it very differently So maybe we will scale down what Thanksgiving is because we are all kind of hurting. We don't have a huge amount of energy. We don't really Mm -hmm. feel like we're celebrating. Or if there are lots of young children, how can we create it good enough, you know, so that we can um, let them have the day that we want them to have and maybe ourselves have moments of it. So one of the things I often talk to clients about is is there a time in the day they can go away and give themselves time to feel the pain and express their loss? Because how we heal is by allowing ourselves to feel the pain. So that might be walking with a family member and remembering and talking, coming back, having a moment, 
and then kind of switching to, okay, I'm going to give myself a breather now and we're going to have a drink and we're going to eat our meal. And so that you move in and out of the kind of dual process of grief where you're loss oriented, but also restorative oriented. And that is the oscillation so that you're both living and grieving. And I think if you can recognize that by your external behaviors, that can support your whole system. And it's a very connected system because the other thing you could talk to each, all of your family, if you're a family that can talk like this, which in it itself is by no means a given, is like, how do each of us grieve differently? So some people grieve differently, but they'll shut down. Someone else, we want to talk about it all the time. Mm -hmm. Someone else will want to avoid it by working or going out with friends or drinking. And so to allow all the different ways within the family, because the whole family is kind of tilted at this point. Yeah. Um, I mean, I could talk for a great length of time. So no, I, this is your this is your wheelhouse. And so I'm, I <laughs> told you that I need to I'm going to grab a copy of your first book, which focuses specifically on grief and and read that before the holiday season, which is approaching very quickly. So I need to I need to grab that copy. But, you know, I, I one of the things I learned from this book is you write that the, the difficult truth is we can only fix what we face. And facing it can be so hard. And you also write that families are in constant flux, which is why they are so complicated and why they're such hard work. And another, I love quoting authors to authors. And, and drivers uh, and drivers mad. Yes, yes, yes. And you know, you write anyone looking at their own family would benefit by examining their inherited family patterns and behaviors, looking with openness to see what may need adapting. So this book teaches us how to take an inventory. There's there's a, a part of the book called 12 Touchstones for the Well-Being of Family that I really liked. Um, but it's in you say in some cases a painful but necessary decision has to be made to cut ties. Repair is not possible for all. So at what point do we know we need to cut ties? And because I think most family situations are salvageable, but there are some that are truly toxic and cannot be fixed. So at what point do you realize I've got to make that difficult decision? I mean, I think, you know, like, like you've said that some families who have what feels like irreparable conflicts and difficulty do, do find their way to come back together. But there are some families where after every kind of interaction, you find yourself feeling so much worse about yourself and your world, and it takes you kind of days to recover. And you may kind of try ways of ship shifting, ship shaping yourself to kind of adapt and meet them who they are. And if continuously that is kind of uh, rejected and you just can't find enough of a window of tolerance within yourself and within them that you can have a good enough interaction that it is really toxic all of the time then maybe when you're weighing up the risks and benefits the risks are higher than the benefits mm -hmm. and that we can find love in many places and sometimes we have to find love and family from people who aren't genetically and biologically our family and that yeah. we do it through close friendship from people who see us and know us. I mean, I think the definition of love is being fully known and seen and allowed to be who you are. Mm -hmm. And and I think in the most dysfunctional, tox toxic families, 
the reverse happens. You absolutely feel like you're not known, you're not seen, you're not accepted. And I think if that is the case, then maybe you grieve. I mean, the, the thing I write, you know, this Archie who had to cut off his mother and he was dying of a brain tumour. This is by no means a simple decision because you family is in you. It's in your DNA. It's in the core memories of your childhood. So he grieved the loss of his mother, who he had no contact with all the time I saw him. He, he spent a lot of time missing and wanting to be able to be close to his mother and recognizing that wasn't a possibility. So I don't think this is a free, no easy decision. But sometimes it is the only decision that we can make for our own mental health and our own well-being. Well, my last question for you today is what do you hope readers ultimately get from the book? Because I obviously got so much, but what do you hope readers get from reading Every Family Has a Story? That's a really good question. I mean, I loved the work for this book. I loved working with families and I loved writing this book. And through it, I think I discovered more about myself and my own family and the roots of where I came from. And it gave me self more self-compassion as a parent, as a partner, and actually as a child of parents and grandparents who I, you know, have reason to be judgmental of, but isn't helpful for me. You know, mm -hmm. hate is a heavy burden or kind of criticism is a heavy burden. So the thing I hope readers would find is what I find, which is much more self-compassion, self-compassion for myself and less criticism, but also more compassion for my parents and my grandparents. And in that self-compassion, I think there really is a kind of healing and that can open us then to a broader capacity to experience and be alive in the world um, and engage more fully in life and, and feel enriched by it. So that's what I'd hope any reader who reads this book would get. Well, self-compassion is the first touchstone for the well-being of the family. Just saying. It is. Um, Just saying. <laughs> well, every, every family has a story how we inherit love and loss is out now. What a true honor it is to have you and your expertise here with me today. Thank you so much. It's an absolute honor to be on your very wonderful podcast and oh, be you. heard by your listeners. Yeah. Thank you. I am so thankful for that conversation. The only person who does not need a copy of this book is the person whose family is perfect which is absolutely no one. So go grab a copy or order a copy of this book and you can thank me later for that. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. And we'll be back very soon with so much more of season six.